You made it. You found us. This is the Dose of Support podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Casper, and I'm a nurse practitioner and healthcare worker just like you. Here at Dose of Support, we bring the whole interdisciplinary team in healthcare together. We hear stories, we have role representation, and we talk about self-care in healthcare. Remember, Dose of Support, it's guests, hosts, are not affiliated or representing an employer or organization. Here, we are sharing our own thoughts and ideas. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider, and my guests are not here to provide healthcare either. Seek out care from your own healthcare professional. And remember to protect privacy and follow HIPAA. It is so hard out there sometimes, and the only people that really understand it are you guys, healthcare workers. So join me and let's get a dose of support. Welcome back, dosies. I'm here for another huddle this week. Let's look back at last week just a little bit. Georgia talked about recognizing the signs and symptoms of this mental decline. So she learned what her signs and symptoms were, and I thought I should also do this. And so I found that my triggers, I guess, that I need to identify are, you know, I'll feel dehydrated and I'll feel like nauseous or a little lightheaded with that. I do definitely get the brain fog that Georgia described, like just not, maybe it's not alert enough or not like engaged enough to like, and maybe that's a defense mechanism. And of course I have significant anxiety as well. So I think that identifying these signs and symptoms can be really helpful. And then being very aware that when you are feeling that way, what do you do? And I actually had a really hard day at work the other day where I drank my coffee, I had a granola bar, and then I ran around for a while and I was feeling really just lightheaded and overwhelmed, even though like I could go sit down anytime I... (laughs) So that's what I did. So I recognized that I was feeling this way and I went and I sat down and I drank, you know, like 500 mils of water or something in one, like a couple, a couple cups of water and gave myself a few minutes. And I think that if you can identify what your signs and symptoms are and then what is going to make you feel better, that is a great place to start for self-care in the moment. And sometimes what we talk about on the show is like, what should you do? How should you plan it into your schedule? But I find that, you know, even when you're working the floor on a shift, no matter what you do, you're busy and you don't have time to go do yoga for 30 minutes, right? Um, So some of these things that we talk about are great to like weave into your life, but not always, that's not always what you really need in the moment. So I wanted to share that example with you of what I did this just this last week. Like literally it was Thursday was my rough day and the episode dropped Wednesday and it was just a perfect, like perfectly timed. Anyway, so I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. Every week we will have pearls like this. So thank you for being here, for being a dosi, and I will talk to you soon. Welcome back to Dose of Support. She was bullied at work, then abused at home. Her experience helped her care for patients in the emergency settings, specifically with mental health or substance misuse disorders. Here with her story of resilience is registered nurse Elizabeth Francis. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, how are you? 
I'm good. Do you go by Elizabeth or Lizzie or like do you <laughs> Elizabeth like- is fine, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Some people are like really particular about that. Like Betsy or like I don't even know. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, just Elizabeth is fine. Awesome. So welcome to the show. We love hearing from nurses and it sounds like you have had a really rough go. So what brought you to nursing in the first place? Um so originally I was going to major in psychology. I was a junior and senior in high school and I was, you know, you kind of have to decide where you want to go to school and kind of the direction you want to take. And I was always interested in, interested in psychology, but I was encouraged by a family member actually to go into nursing just because there's so many different opportunities. You can really do anything with nursing with, you know, you can do psychology psych with nursing, which is what I am going to do in the future. Um, you know, you can work in a doctor's office. There's just a wide range of opportunities with nursing. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did. So that's kind of how I got into it. Okay. And as an emergency room nurse, I like, so everyone thinks they know what that's all about. <laughs> even, <laughs> even non healthcare people think they know. Yes. But what is it? What is it really like working in the ER? Um, so I'm in a trauma center now. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people look at it as, you know, they watch Grey's Anatomy and there are those types of, you know, I see the bloodbath traumas and the heart attacks and, you know, those horrific pediatric abuse cases. But most of the time it's your, you know, abdominal pain or STD exposure or, you know, just things like that, nausea, vomiting. Um, we see a lot of that in the ER. So it's the more minor, I wouldn't say minor, there are patients that are very sick, but um, it's more of that than than the Grey's Anatomy type of scenes in the emergency department with CPR and all of that. Yeah. So one thing we haven't touched on the show very much about is how the emergency rooms in America are used as primary care offices. And a lot of people present to the ER because they don't have a clinic to go to, or they don't know what the resources are in their community. And so- so I'm I'm a former ICU nurse at a trauma center and we would have people come in for a stub toe, a hangnail, you know, and like you said, like an STI situation where they just needed an antibiotic or, mm-hmm. you know, so very, very common primary care non-emergent things come to the ER and they're not emergencies. Yes. Um, and that has always been really frustrating for me to see our, our resources used that way. And I think, would you say, I mean, you're this, this episode is going to air, um, down the line for all I know, it'll be when the pandemic is over, but during the pandemic, have you seen a drop in visits coming to the ER like that? So definitely in March and April, the ER was a ghost town. So when the pandemic started, I mean, we had to flex nurses home, which never happens in the ER because we're always understaffed. I think a lot of nursing is like that, but especially in the emergency department, just because there's such a high turnover because it's a very high stress job. Um, But now, you know, I've personally in my emergency department in Missouri, we, I've seen a lot of COVID patients, obviously. um, But then you also have people coming in with, I just had a patient recently that came in for literally a rolled ankle. Um, no other, it wasn't broken. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't broken. Not only that, it wasn't swollen, nothing. And it happened four or five days prior. So we definitely are still seeing that. I I was like, it's so frustrating. I'm like, seriously, like seriously. (laughs) 
So um, like, this, is, this is not the time to show up. With I know. A complaint like that. Just, just ice it and. You know, <laughs> I just ice it and and or, move or on, calls, please. Calls, like, there are there are nurse triage lines in for clinics that you can just call. Like, just call and say, "Hey, do I need to come in for this?" Like, I literally don't. But that's the problem, right? You and I have the knowledge, mm-hmm. and so, and we have talked about the socioeconomic determinants of health on this podcast on how people just don't know, and it's not their fault that they don't know. They weren't taught that. Our educational systems in America have failed our people, and yes. it's like it, it's a problem that's bigger than dose of support can handle. But I think if we acknowledge like that patients present to us with with no like knowledge of how to navigate the healthcare system here i think and that's why we i mean i digress this is a whole other social issue like we had social workers on every corner like yes. we would just like you know anyway so so what made you think like okay i've done this er work how long have you been a nurse I've been a nurse for about 18 months now. so like a year and a half. Okay. And so what made you think like, you know, I'm going to be a psych NP. I'm going to go back to school. Um, honestly, so I have struggled with my own personal mental health throughout high school. I was, you kind of hinted at it at the very beginning of the podcast. I was severely bullied in high school, which kind of sent me on a downward spiral with my mental health. Um, and now I would say whenever I first started became a nurse, I, um, switched to night shift very quickly. And so I started to really struggle again, just, it's a huge routine change and routine is such an important part of self-care and kind of battling depression. Um, so kind of those own personal struggles that I've had, I wanted to be an advocate for some of the most, in my opinion, the most stigmatized people in society. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what, and it's very needed because, as you said, the problem kind of with access to care in general and education, we have this problem in America where most of the providers are located in major cities like Seattle, St. Louis, Los Angeles. But in the more rural areas, there's only one, maybe one or no, no providers in those rural areas. Um, yeah. So, and, and especially for psych provider, providers. If there's a provider, it's an NP or a PA, y'all. Exactly. Yes. Represent. Physicians don't want to serve those small communities. Physicians always, I, mean, I feel like there's so many physicians now that are specializing to the point where like they have to work at a big academic center mm-hmm. or, you know, like, and, and that's great. We need specialists. Like we need meticulous dermatologists we need like surgeons that specialize in what they do like we need those people but i'm saying that there aren't physicians in rural areas that can treat just general problems that come up and there are there are still people in those places that need care yes so i think that's a great endeavor and i i grew up rurally and so it's a special a special part of America that I think is really, it really needs those services. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we will get into your story, but we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to, I mean, hopefully you'll share as much as possible. Cause I feel I'm really nosy and I, <laughs> I want to know all the details. All right. So listeners, you stay tuned.
are back with our registered nurse in the emergency room, Elizabeth Francis, and she's here to tell us her background story and a patient story. So take it away, Elizabeth. So kind of my story, my struggle with mental health started in seventh grade. Um, That's kind of when I started to be bullied at school, you know, just for how I looked, you know, my hair being super curly, my teeth being crooked. I had braces for almost six years. Um, so that's kind of where wow, that that's, that's been a long time. <laughs> it was a, a really time. long time, especially seeing my friends get their braces off after like two years and I'm going like almost triple that amount of time. It was really frustrating. So it's just, you know, the grade school stuff. And then high school came around and I just got super incredibly depressed. Um, I spent most of, I remember one summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school basically lived in my room wasn't even in the basement, but I was in the basement, you know, basements are dark and cold. I would go to sleep at seven o'clock at night and not wake up till four or 5 PM the next day. That's how much I was sleeping. Um, I would just watch. uh, Yeah, it was awful. My parents would bring my food down there. Um, so I was kind of isolated during that time. Um, it was a really, really rough few months. And even throughout high school, I was doing really poorly in my classes, just, you know, it affects your academic performance, having depression like that. And on top of it, going to school, not wanting to go to school and being bullied at school and kind of ostracized. That's kind of my background. Um, With that, I got to college. I definitely was doing a lot better. I still today struggle with seasonal depression, I guess you could say in college. And now I would say, honestly, now I'm whatever what the kids would say is peaking now just because I've kind of gotten it figured out and um you know I'm doing really well academically and in my job um um, and I I still so just going from you know barely passing classes in high school to kind of struggling in college and then getting better getting into nursing school and how did you what did you do to to get better like like mental health, as as you know, I'm just going to get all preachy, you know, like it's a real disease, yes. a chronic condition that people live with. And so like, so like depression, anxiety, bipolar one and two, like these, they're, they're real things that need constant care. Okay. So, so you went through a lot and you have made it to this great place where, you know, everyone, everyone has challenges in their life, but you're trying to work past that and work towards this greater goal to help other mental health patients. Are there special patients that you've encountered that have really solidified and encouraged you that you're on the right path? Yes, definitely. Um, in the ER, we see patients that come in in you know mental health distress or they're addicted to drugs and they're looking for um, a referral to inpatient treatment. And if, as you, I don't know if you know this or if the listeners know this, but if you have a substance use disorder, at least the literature shows 25% of people that have a substance use disorder have mental health disorders also. And I would say that that is like an underrepresented. Yes. Number. And I was just going to say that I was, anyway, I had a patient come in and he was in clearly in emotional distress. He looked just really upset. And so he just lost his job because of his drug addiction. His wife was leaving him and taking the kids. He was like, I'm super ashamed to even be here. It took a lot for me to even talk myself to come in. The nurse, me, I call and get the transfer set up um, to get that patient into the inpatient detox facility. Anyway, so I read off his vital signs 
and the facility, so they were, you know, 130 over 80. And then his heart rate was a little bit high as in the one team, like 115, 116. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't take him. His heart rate's too high. And this was the first time that I had tried to transfer a patient out like this um, to the this facility. You realize, you know, tachycardia is a normal symptom of withdrawing from drugs. You know what I mean? Their heart rate's going to be a little right. bit higher than normal. Their blood pressure is going to be a little bit higher than normal. You know, I was kind of frustrated because I'm like, as a detox facility, you should know this. They're like, well, just try to bring his heart rate down and call us back in a little bit. So I told the doctor and the doctor was like, okay, just start an IV and, you know, give him some fluids. So I did that. It went down to like 105, 106, still a little bit, a little bit tacky. Called back. They basically said, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. We can't admit him. You know, I'm getting pissed off because this yeah. patient had was already in almost in tears whenever I'm talking to him saying, I really need this. I need help. It's hard for me to get out of, it's hard for these patients to get out of that toxic situation that they're in and only giving a patient outpatient referrals if they don't meet inpatient criteria. There's still 23 more hours in a day that they're not in an outpatient appointment, that they're in mm -hmm. that situation that's really hard to get themselves out of, especially if, you know, their whole family and friends have shunned them basically. Yeah. So I'm going back and forth, back and forth with the, with the facility. You know, I'm like, I'm going to talk to your supervisor. I want to talk to your supervisor. And Perry and I get to like, basically the owner of this facility at three in the morning, they woke up and this, the owner was like, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. We can't take this patient. We're not a medical facility. That's what they kept saying. We're not medical. We're not medical. I, I had to go back in that room and tell that patient that we had to just discharge him, that there was nothing we can do. And as a nurse, you know, as a clinician and an advocate to have to go in and, and tell that patient that not only needed help, but how often do you see addicts come in that actually want help? And it was his first time ever coming in. You know, it's okay if you come in five, six times going to inpatient treatment, but this patient had never come in before. This really stuck with me because I felt yeah. helpless. Um, and so he starts crying harder and he's like, I just need this. Like, what am I supposed to do? I go home and, you know, I'm in this. And he talked about the environment he was in. And so I told him, you know, you can get a pull socks from, from Walgreens or Walmart and monitor your heart rate at home. If it's if the number's under a hundred, please come back and see us and I'll, we'll work on getting you transferred quickly. Um, so we discharged him, you know, I'm upset. So yeah. fast forward a couple of weeks, he comes back in and he had overdosed and was in critical condition. The same patient I just happened to be working that night. Wow. And, you know, there haven't been many times that I had to step out of a room because I'm not a very emotional person. Um, I'm able to detach myself very easily working in the ER, especially. But that was really hard. Um, just feeling guilty for it. And knowing that I did everything that I could, I did my best to advocate and, you know, talking to the, the owner of the facility. But at the same time, it's like, why is the system like this? Like the system is broken. This should have never happened. It validated that, like I said, there's policies and procedures that need to be changed and looked at because like I said earlier, tachycardia is a normal symptom of withdrawing from drugs. So that needs to be considered. But also seeing this guy come in who clearly was depressed about his situation, what was happening within his own life, and kind of seeing myself in him where it's like, are looking for help and there seems to be nobody there, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Honestly, Elizabeth, I I also worked at a trauma center in a, and it was a county hospital. And I just think... This type of patient is very common, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you would agree with that. Yes. So it's not like this was an isolated incident. And so for the folks listening that maybe 
have never worked in a facility like that before, or maybe you work in in outpatient settings and you haven't seen a lot of this. Um, I think it is really common. So I, I would say that, you know, it's not just like a problem that happens every once in a while. It really is a big issue that needs to be addressed. And yes. you and I aren't going to fix it today. But, <laughs> I but wish. You, so obviously you touched on how hard it was to grow up in your environment and with bullying and having braces literally forever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I'm wondering, what did you do to clinically, like you had clinical depression, have, you have clinical depression. Mm -hmm. So like, what do you do to manage that? And then you see hard stuff at work too. So -hmm. what do you do to manage how you feel? Like with this guy, Mm -hmm. like, it's okay to have the emotion that you felt. It sounds like you're really good at detaching. And I'm, I said this to a few, a few people in other episodes, like I don't do that very well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like some people might be listening and they might be like, oh, I would feel all of that. And so what do you do for self-care? So what I do is, so one thing I've been doing actually really recently, um, there's a lot of evidence-based literature out there about light therapy. So I have um, this light therapy lamp that I got, um, Dr. Daniel Amen. he's actually um, Justin Bieber's psychiatrist, um, and he's a neuroscientist, but he uh, talked a lot about this. And so that's whenever I kind of started researching it. Um, so basically you can get them from Amazon too, but I got them from Dr. Amen's clinic website. Um, but like I said, you can get it from Amazon. So basically it's just a little light and I have it on my desk, um, in the morning, arms length away, 15 to 30 minutes a day. Um, it really helps with seasonal depression. There's, like I said, a lot of literature that supports that, um, specifically for seasonal depression, but also if you're just feeling down, um, especially whenever it's gloomy outside, you can't get outside and get some sunlight because that really helps boost your mood. So basically this light, um, it can help regulate your circadian rhythm, which I thought was really interesting. And it, it has helped me um, with my night shift schedule, kind of stay on yeah. a schedule with sleep. Like if you don't have very good sleep hygiene, maybe it would help you with that. Yes. I actually have, so you have this one that you got on Amazon. I have something called a happy light and it's uh-huh. just like a little mini it's, but it's, you know, very similar. It's, it's, and they have their own website. You can just go to Happy Light, not an ad. I'm just saying like, I have one and I really like it. And another thing that I, there's a lot of research about, but something that I personally do is I eat a diet that's enriched in omega-3s supplement also on top of that. What the literature is a little bit sparse on any supplementation. Yes. Um, yes. Like, so like for fish oil in, in particular, it's only been shown to clinically reduce triglycerides. Like a lot of people think, oh, I have high cholesterol. I'll take fish oil. Yes. Like, nah, dude. No, bro. (laughs) Yeah, no. That's actually not what happens. And so (laughs) it's really hard because supplements, they do have their place. But like I've, I've talked on some of our pharmacy episodes that like, if you're not deficient in something, you probably don't need it. It Just pee it out. You pee it out. Um, Right. So how did you... How did you get into this whole, like, choosing this diet for yourself? The literature on the importance of diet and mood, they're very much connected. And I saw a pattern in um, more of a Mediterranean diet is kind of what I follow. Um, 
but the supplement industry is not regulated like it should be. So I think that people look to pop a pill to make up for their shitty diet, you know? So yeah. I, um, another thought about the diet is, so we've had a few dietitians on and Mm -hmm. like in episode 21, Lindsay talked a lot about intuitively knowing, learning what makes you feel good. Like, Mm -hmm. like when you eat dairy, do you really feel like shit afterwards? And so, (laughs) and so like learning what your body wants and just giving that to your body, it can and and not having guilt about what that is carbs are not bad you know like yes. it, unless unless for you like if for you if you have issues after you eat that and you don't feel good then mm-hmm. then you know it's not for you so it sounds like you had a little bit of intuitive eating mm-hmm. um to figure out what makes you feel the best and that's part of your management definitely so diet happy lights what else routine so I talked about how whenever I started on night shift earlier, it sucked um, because I was thrown out of my normal routine, which for me has been so important. And I see it a lot in patients. They're thrown out of a certain routine from a trauma or a stress that's going on in their life. Um, for me, having a certain time that I wake up every day or night or afternoon that I wake up doing this, certain things at this time, knowing when you when you learn the best, you know, reading kind of sticking to a schedule has tremendously helped me also. Whenever I just, whenever I have a routine, I get up and I exercise was another thing I was going to talk about. I walk, go outside and I walk my dogs for 30 minutes. Then I come inside and I eat something for breakfast. I eat an avocado. I eat a piece of chicken, whatever it is. Um, I sit and I read my book with my light lamp on the desk. Um, Just sticking to a routine has has been life-changing for me is probably the number one thing that I would say. I would say that for anyone that works night shift, period, no matter what profession you are in, um, night shift work is is really hard and a lot of people don't do it forever. A lot of people are like, they they find that routine and it works for them. I loved night shift. I loved uh-huh. it. Um, but a lot of people are like, I can't do it. Um, so <laughs> yeah. uh, how did you find your routine? Um, it was definitely trial and error for me. Um, some like whenever I first started night shift, I would just sleep all day until literally 10 minutes before I had to leave for work. And that was not working because I felt like a piece of shit because I wasn't doing anything during the three or four days a week that I was working. So it just made my self-esteem go down. Like I was just laying around all day and sleeping all day, every day until I had to work because I thought that I had to sleep all day until I had to leave for work basically. But then I was like, no, I can wake up and be to work just the same if I wake up two hours before I have to go and read a book, go outside and walk my dogs, you know, jump rope, you know, do stuff like that. So it definitely was trial and error for like the first three or four months after I started night shift. Well, and you were a new graduate on night yes. as well, right? So yes. like you're transitioning to like your, your work life for the first time as well, which is a huge transition after college that I think a lot of students that are listening would really benefit from hearing. Like once you graduate, it's like, well, then what you, you literally just start working. Like mm-hmm. that's all, like you don't study when you're off of work. You don't like what? And so I think that whole transition period of like who you're becoming and like it is, it's, it's a transition all on its own without having the night shift in there. And what mm-hmm. I like what you said about like getting outside and trying to do like human activities and not, <laughs> okay, Elizabeth, let's just say people are like, 
I love Elizabeth. She's a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> How that. can they find you? They can find me, I guess, on Instagram. That's really kind of the what my platform that I or LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn for professional connections. Um, I learn a lot. A lot of the articles that I found, the literature, I find it on LinkedIn from like prominent doctors, physicians. That's kind of where I generate a lot of the things that I learn um, to improve myself, but also implement it into my clinical practice. Um, also, more a more personal thing, I guess, is um, Instagram. I don't know what my handle is, and I'm looking right now because <laughs> uh, I don't have my full name on there. It's oh, it's E underscore francis spelled the cool way f-r-a-n-c-i-s and then the number one is there a uncool way to spell <laughs> yes it? the e-s f-r-a-n-c-e-s oh okay yeah don't do that all right don't do that don't cool. you won't find me you will not find me <laughs> okay well <laughs> listeners you guys know what to do if you're looking for me elizabeth thank you so much for coming on dose of support today and being so vulnerable with us i appreciate it not a problem thank you so much for having me all right listeners i'll be back in your ears next week dose of support is much more than a podcast if you love what you heard here today please write us a review or give the show a rating tell a friend about the show maybe we can help somebody else you can find us on facebook instagram youtube or become a patreon we need you Dose of Support is written, managed, produced, edited, mixed, published, all the things by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by John Schreier. Thank you for being here and for being a dosey. I will be back in your ears next week for another Dose of Support.